Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. Today is no exception. I am thrilled to be talking to Dr. Mark Pimentel. I know he doesn't need any introduction in, um, in our world, but let me give you some of his background because it's just, it's really impressive, um, and he continues to do uh, cutting-edge work. So he's a professor of medicine at Geffen School of Medicine and an associate professor at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in LA, California. Um, his background is in microbiology and biochemistry, um, and then he, at the University of Manitoba, and then he received his medical degree also from the University of Manitoba. Um, he came to UCLA and completed a fellow in gastroenterology. Uh, his He's continually active in research, and he's the principal invest investigator or co-PI for um, a lot of studies from basic science and translational to, to clinical studies um, in areas such as IBS and really looking at SIBO and defining SIBO, looking at the gut flora, et cetera. He's been published in all of the top tier journals from New England Journal of Medicine, um, and, you know, and on to gastroenterology and uh, digestive diseases and sciences. A little bit of the accomplishments of Dr. Pimentel, it, you know, include the fact that he uh, discovered uh, rifaximin as treatment for IBS. He was the one who put that on the map for all of us, just a really a, a remarkable finding. Um, he developed the first blood test for IBS um, on the basis of IBS being derived from acute gastroenteritis. Uh, 
he described the association be between IBS and bacterial overgrowth, which forms the basis for uh, microbiome therapies in this condition. He has un he uncovered the methanogen, um, Methanobrevibacter smithii, as the agent for causing constipation in humans. Uh, and he's currently, well, he discovered the use of lovastatin in treating uh, constipation created by the methanogens, and he's also actually involved in researching that now. Um, they're still recruiting for that study. Uh, Dr. Pimentel, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you so much for that. It's great to have, yeah, it's just great to have you here. Let's, so I want to just start by uh, defining all of the, you know, the, the defining C SIBO and IBS. Well, so I, I sort of look at SIBO and IBS differently, although they're the same. So <clears throat> the way I describe it to people now is it's, it's sort of like peptic ulcer disease. So you have peptic ulcer disease back in the 80s where you find an ulcer in the stomach, the patient's having pain, and you scope and there's an ulcer. Then it was later discovered that about 60 or 70% of ulcers in the stomach were due to H. pylori, which was a bacteria. Uh, and But we didn't change the name from peptic ulcer disease to H. pylori disease. It's still peptic ulcer disease, except what we can say now or then was that H. pylori was the cause of 60 to 70% of ulcers. Okay, so now IBS, same thing. So irritable bowel syndrome is a group of patients who have these unexplained symptoms of abdominal pain, alternating bowel patterns, sometimes more diarrhea, sometimes more constipation, and nobody knew what was going on. And now... With SIBO, we think we can explain 60 to 70% of IBS with SIBO. But the other reason why IBS, the name, should stay is because first, similar to H. pylori and peptic ulcer disease, uh, there's a lot of people who don't have IBS who also have SIBO because they have adhesions or because they have um, stasis of the bowel or other reasons. So it's, it's kind of important to sort of keep the nomenclature, but understand the SIBO is a cause of things that may not be like sort of the primary diagnosis. And what are the various SIBOs? So uh, we're, we're starting to subdivide SIBO into various types. So mm -hmm. first of all, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth by its definition is that the small intestine, which ordinarily shouldn't have very many bacteria, now has too many bacteria, mostly from the colon in the small bowel. So that's the traditional and still the definition of SIBO. And that's where you get your positive hydrogen breath test. The second SIBO is no longer SIBO. It's now called EMO, intestinal methanogen overgrowth. So when methanogens, which are not bacteria, are elevated in the intestines, and they're elevated not just in the small bowel, but also the colon in those patients. So we can't really call it small intestinal. And really, we can't call it bacteria because it's archaea. It's not bacteria because methanogens are archaea. So we had to change the term. Otherwise, it wasn't really proper. So it's intestinal methanogen overgrowth. The third type of, quote, overgrowth, which we don't have a really defined term for is, yet, is hydrogen sulfide excess. And so hydrogen sulfide are bacteria, and they are ex excessively present in some patients, and that leads to diarrhea. And, uh, but we don't have a breath test available for that yet. And we don't have uh, an exact understanding of where these organisms are proliferating, small bowel, colon, or both. Um, so, I mean, is that a, is it, is it, is it kind of a rule out diagnosis at this point? Or, I mean, had, had, 
yeah, how do you how do you actually like tease through the various imbalances to conclude somebody has hydrogen sulfide overgrowth? Well, hydrogen sulfide overgrowth is a little tricky, but often so we used to think we think this is hydrogen sulfide because the breath test is flat or a flat line. Mm-hmm. A flat line means you have one, 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 one for hydrogen all the way across. Yep. Nobody has zero hydrogen in their gut. So that doesn't make sense. Something must be consuming the hydrogen. And if there's no methane, it's not the methanogens. And the other alternative is the sulfate reducing bacteria, which produce hydrogen sulfide. So those would be the ones that, uh, that are likely present to account for the flat line. Okay. All right. So a flat line is with, coupled with symptoms. Yes, correct. Hydrogen sulfide. Correct, correct. Um, let me, I just want to circle back to just the, the, the to SIBO itself, uh, the hydrogen, the excess production of hydrogen. The main players uh, involved are, uh, the main, bac- yeah, go ahead. No, I didn't understand the question. The main bacteria, so the main bacteria implicated in, in generating, in being present in uh primary SIBO. Oh, primary SIBO, yeah. So um, recent studies that we've been uh, presenting at major meetings are we've actually, through the reimagined study, been able to start to dissect what are the bacteria that are part of the small bowel. So in SIBO, the characters that are excessive are E. coli, Klebsiella, and Aeromonas. And we published a small paper, a smaller paper, a number of years ago, mentioning those as apparently higher in SIBO. But now with the reimagined study, we've, we've had, we have more patients and we've uh, more clearly defined that those are the characters. And so the way I sort of used to call it, and I think I, I can say it again because I think that's really the truth, is that when you don't have good flow of the small bowel, it's sort of like you're not mowing your lawn and the grass looks great when you're mowing your lawn, but as soon as you stop mowing your lawn, the weeds outpopulate the grass and suddenly you didn't realize how many weeds you had in the garden uh, or in the, on the grass because they're growing higher than the grass. And, and I think that's the case here is that these bugs, the E. coli, Klebsiella, and Aeromonas are opportunistic. And if there's poor flow, they latch on and they uh, just proliferate. Yeah. Well, and I've got a few questions on that. Like, what would you say, what are the top causes in your experience? of this particular pattern of overgrowth? So without a doubt, the number one association with SIBO is gonna be irritable bowel syndrome, purely by the fact that IBS accounts for about 12 to 14% of the entire US population or world population. So it's 40 to 60 million Americans suffer from irritable bowel syndrome. So again, as I mentioned, that's probably the bulk. And we know that IBS is, is associated with various muscular or neurological and muscular abnormalities of the small intestine, which I think we're going to get to later with the uh, antibody testing. But we know that there's a sort of a neuropathy of the gut in IBS, and that's what's causing the slowing or the poor flow of the gut. But of course, there's many others. Scleroderma patients, which is a rare condition, but it's an autoimmune disease, they they tend to have very bad um, overgrowth. And then, you know, narcotic users, they'll slow their gut down enough to get to get this. And so those are really some of the common ones. Adhesions is another one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about acid blocking therapy? 
Yeah, the irony of that is we presented that at the meeting last year. So the reimagine study, when we looked at the small intestinal microbiome, the presence of SIBO and any changes in the microbiome in the small bowel and even the stool we tested, there were some subtle changes, but it wasn't overgrowth. There was just some redistribution of bacteria. The, so the way I can explain that is that, you know, if you were to um, wipe your counter once a day with Mr. Clean or with your favorite counter cleaner or Windex, the counter would be clean. You don't have to wipe it all day. So it's the same thing with acid. These acid blocking medications are blocking acid for about 90% of the day, but 10% of the day acid is being produced. And when it's yeah. produced, it's enough to kill most of the bugs that are susceptible. I, that's sort of how I explain it. But there's another explanation, and that is that lack of acid makes the cleaning waves of the gut occur more frequently. And so hmm. um, it's, it's, it's sort of well known that as the acid production in the stomach diminishes after the completion of a meal, because you need a lot more acid when you're eating, uh, as that diminishes, the cleaning waves return and the two are run together. So people on PPIs have more cleaning waves sooner after a meal which is kind of interesting because we think cleaning waves are the cause, not having enough cleaning waves are the cause of, uh, of SIBO. That's so fascinating. So then you would consider this maybe as an intervention, I'm sure. <laughs> well, okay, so there, we could take it one step further. One step further is that the methanogens, and this is the paper we published on PPIs a number of years ago. If you're on a PPI, you have less methane because the PPI prevents hydrogen from getting into the gut. And acid hydrogen is also a source for methanogens to produce methane. So if you're on a PPI, you produce less methane. How does this, you know, what's the twist on this? The twist on this is that a lot of um, practitioners use um, betaine HCL or apple cider vinegar Right. As mechanism of treating SIBO. But if you have methane SIBO, you're basically putting gas on the fire. So you have to know what kind of SIBO you have before using these acid containing products. Right, right, right. Or antacid or turning acid off. That's so, that's really quite interesting. Um, so in the reimagined study, uh, you were, you, you, you really did, you did a, a deep dive into the mucus layer and um, kind of revolutionized the diagnosis or what you're actually seeing in terms of quantity of organisms. And can you talk a little bit about that study? So we've learned a tremendous amount just in the last two years. The study's been going on for about two and a half years. The first year was just nobody was taking juice from the small bowel correctly. I mean, uh. people weren't using protected catheter. They weren't doing it sterilely. They weren't, they didn't, they weren't even amplifying all the bugs that were there because as a paper we just published just before, uh, just in December, the mucus is so thick, you can't get the bugs out to amplify their DNA. So you have to, first of all, thin the mucus. Once you do all these steps, there's so much more bacteria there than we imagined. But, but the point I'm trying to get at is we've had to validate all the techniques. And now that they're validated, we're seeing a lot more than we used to. But, um, what we see is that the small bowel microbiome, just as a first observation, is nothing like the colon microbiome. So if you do stool studies, 
uh, and I'm not knocking stool studies. I just want you to understand what you're getting. Yeah. Doing stool studies, you're measuring the bugs in stool. You are not measuring the bugs in the small bowel. The stool is not a reference to the small bowel whatsoever because it's literally another planet. Yeah. So let me give you an example. Bacteroidetes is present in very high numbers in, in that category in stool. It's almost non-existent in small bowel. In small bowel, it's firmicutes and proteobacteria. So when you've lost an entire category, anyways, the shift and the difference is night and day. So you can't use stool as a surrogate for small bowel, period. That, that we showed and, and that's coming out in a paper, but we already presented it, so it's public information. Uh, the second is that the, the, these organisms, these E. coli, Klebsiella, and Aeromonas, they really are driving things. And it's almost like flipping a switch. Once they start to grow in high numbers, they almost tip the bacteria over like a seesaw into another state, which is hard to get out of. Um, they sort of are self-motivating, if you will, and they've sort of taken over the environment. And it's hard to flip back. Uh, so that's something we've, we've also noted. And, and many other things. I don't want to take too long to answer your question. But, well, it's but. actually really interesting. I, I, so this is, I mean, the, 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 the fact that they can just, they can survive um, in this incredibly, this thick mucus layer uh, is, you know, explains the, 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 these chronic SIBO patients. I'm, I'm imagining and this think about it think about yourself if it was you and you would want to live in a trash can or live in a four or five star restaurant with fresh food where would you want to live uh the small bowels fresh food coming in and by the time it sure. gets stolen it's just trash bin so these bacteria don't want to let go they want to be there and and uh, once they've established themselves they they really realize it's much better up here how is that, so this understanding, the, you know, the reimagined study you've, you've, you've been doing for over time, I mean, how has that shifted your thinking with, with regard to interventions? Well, it's, it's shifted my thinking in terms of the complexity of what's going on up there and the breadth. One, one of the things that we've done some calculations on is people talk about, you know, um, the Gut Microbiome Project, which was a publication in Nature about 12 years ago, yeah. you know, it was sort of like this big victory lap that we've now determined the gut microbiome. And in 2020, I'm saying, no, you haven't, because they're, the small bowel, you didn't look at the small bowel, and it's completely different. The second part of it is, if you look at the colon, which is only three feet long, and granted, there's chunks of stool in there, so that looks impressive, but the small bowel is 15 feet long and has the surface area of a tennis court. And if you were to smear a thin layer of peanut butter on a tennis court, that's a hell of a lot of peanut butter. Uh, and so the question is, is, is there a larger microbiome in the small bowel than even the colon? And who's really the big impact or player? not to mention the small bowels where everything is absorbed. So whatever bugs are in the small bowel are affecting you more than what's in stool in the center of a piece of stool. So I think we have to bend our focus again towards the small bowel. Yeah, right. That's fascinating. Now, how, I guess you, you, you're, all of these points you're making are just 
prompting more questions in me. I mean, so how do we, I mean, what kind of tools do we have as clinicians to evaluate this beyond the breath test? And you say stool is of no utility. Um, so if you see the presence of Klebsiella, which is, which is relatively common, or um, certainly E. coli is always a big player in the stool, um, or Aramonas. I mean, if you, th th there, there's just, regardless of how elevated they are, there's no inference you can make. There's no surrogate. Well, I guess let me restate so it's clear. If you find abnormal things in stool that aren't supposed to be in stool, you can make inference that that may be abnormal. But what, I, what, what people are tending to do and what I'm trying to clarify is that you can't look at what's in the stool and say, aha, that's what's in the small bowel. That's what I'm trying to say is that don't use stool as a surrogate for what's happening in the small intestine and say they have SIBO or that they have some kind of small bowel condition because that those connections, I mean, we're the first to even look at small bowel and stool in the same patients with a detailed kind of analysis like this. And so if we haven't said anything about it, it doesn't quite exist. And, and I don't mean that in a, in an arrogant way. It's just, it's just that not a lot of people are studying the small bowel. Yes. My point, don't use stool to imply the small bowel. Use stool to imply stool. Good. Uh, okay. I got it. Yeah. You got a lot of Klebsiella in the stool and it's not supposed to be there. Okay. That's not normal, but it doesn't mean you have Klebsiella in your small bowel. We can't make those connections yet. Perfect. Okay. All right. Well, listen, I have to ask you one more. <laughs> Serena, even though you're being very clear, what about Archaea, you know, in a really high M. Smithi? I mean, any inference then or no? Yeah, so that's different because M. smithii, which is why we changed the name to intestinal methanogen overgrowth, is because M. smithii lives in the colon yeah. and in the small bowel in cases. And so while you can't infer that if it's high in the stool, it's high in the small bowel, what you can infer is that it's high in the stool, it's probably causing the methane on the breath test. Remember, the breath test on methane doesn't need lactulose, doesn't need glucose to prime. It's either, you're either methane positive or you're not, uh, and you're producing it all the time. So M. smithii in the stool is probably okay, and we published one paper on that showing that the levels of M. smithii by PCR in the stool correlate with symptoms. So uh, I think there's data to substantiate that comment. Okay. All right. Okay, good. Well, thanks for that. Uh, important distinction. So I just, just so, so the breath test is our, currently our best tool. Would it's you the, agree? It's the easiest tool. Um, yeah. And, you know, one of the things, and this is something that I've been writing a paper, um, another paper uh, just recently, and, and there, there's just, as you review the, every time I look back at the literature on this, breath testing was never validated. I mean, we had to basically take the breath test, turn it on its head upside down, shake the coins out of the pocket to try and figure out, you know, it, it, the breath test just sort of gradually emerged without a true validation. So we finally, uh, last year's DDW presented the validation of the breath test against sequencing of the bowel against, um, against uh, culture as well. Mm -hmm. and, and the breath test is related to SIBO. So in other words, if the if by 90 minutes the hydrogen is more than 20, which is what we've been arguing is the cutoff, that is the best cutoff for SIBO. And actually it works. So I'm 
it's ironic. What we were doing was correct, but there was no data to prove that it was correct until last year. Um, so that's good to know. It's reassuring that we haven't been completely foolish all these years. But um, but there's more to under. It, it's an indirect test, so it's not perfect. Uh, and, but it's the best thing we have, and it's easy. It's cheap. It's it's easy for patients. I mean, what I don't want to see happen is that people start putting tubes into the upper gut and sucking juice on hundreds of thousands of patients a year to see if they have right. sleep. I don't think I don't think patients would want that, and, and it's just too invasive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, incidentally, folks, we will link to as many of these papers as possible. The um, most recent February publication, or excuse me, January of this year, um, the ACG clinical guideline on uh, SIBO, we'll link to that, and that will um, actually it lays it out pretty pretty clearly the evidence for. Uh, using the breath, breath test, the utility of it. What about the SMART test? I mean, when are we going to be using the IBS SMART test? I mean, just talk, talk about that a little bit and, and, and uh, the benefit that of that in clinical practice. I think the IBS SMART test has changed my practice. Now, I'm biased. I helped develop it. But obviously, what we're trying to do is find things that help our practice. That's what we've been doing the whole, whole last 23 years. Um, Patients come in, they have either IBS or SIBO, and, and we're talking about the diarrhea side now, and they can't understand why. They don't know why. They're, they're not confident that they even have IBS. They say, doctor, are you, you know, I'm not responding to everything. Are you sure you're right? Um, so those are the kinds of comments we get over many years. But, but the point is that we now know more about the cause of IBS diarrhea than we do even Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis because food poisoning starts IBS. So about 12 years ago, maybe even longer, we were on a mission to say, okay, well, how does food poisoning cause IBS? And could it cause SIBO in IBS? Could it be the cause of the SIBO of IBS? And the answer is we, we proved all of that. Uh, using Campylobacter, we showed that it uh, in, in infecting animal studies, and we showed that it caused SIBO, it caused IBS in animals. And it was, it allowed us, those animal models allowed us to dissect the path. Uh -huh. And it turns out that the toxin CDTB, which is the toxin from most food poisonings of bacterial origin, causes an autoimmune reaction in a subset of humans. And that autoimmunity is to a protein that's important for gut nerve integrity, among other things. And uh, when that protein's elevated or that antibody is elevated in the blood, we can use it as a diagnostic test for IBS. But why is it important? So it, it, there's a number of reasons why it's important. First of all, a blood test that can tell you you have IBS and it's from food poisoning means you get a diagnosis of IBS and we understand exactly what's going on in you in two or three days instead of the six years that was previously published, that's how long it took for a patient to feel comfortable that this was their diagnosis. Mm. Uh, second of all, we can move to treatment faster because once we make the diagnosis, we don't have to mess around with colonoscopies in 25-year-old people mm. and, and uh, get to treatment. But more importantly for the patient, this is not in your head. When the blood test is positive, it's a real disease. Number two, food poisoning caused it. You better not get food poisoning again because if you do, you're going to get a worsening of the antibody and a more difficult disease to treat. And three, when the antivinculin is up, it usually means there's a motility problem. So in our practice, 
what we do is we are more likely to reach to prokinetics to treat it. Mm-hmm. I'll give you one example of a case, which is super interesting. And I've been talking about this, this particular patient is a person who got food poisoning uh, about two years ago and, and developed anti-CDTB antibodies just to the toxin, not to the autoimmunity. And, you know, he was a little hard to treat, but we were successful. We were treating him for about two years. And then he came in in December and he says, I'm doing great. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I've stopped all my medications about six months ago. It seems like everything sort of drifted off and, and I'm fine now, back to normal. So we measured the anti-CDTB again and it's gone. So we know that if you develop the anti-CDTB only, that you're more likely to just simply resolve as the antibodies drift away, as, as all antibodies do sort of like vaccines, you have to get vaccines every five or 10 years because the antibody will drift away if you don't get food poisoning again. So it's completely changed how we manage our patients uh, using this test. And so we use it like in all of our diarrhea patients. People will say, well, the patient had food poisoning, I ordered the test. And I'm like, well, that's great. That's good to do it there. But you should be using it in the ones that you don't know or they don't remember food poisoning because they just don't remember. Uh, and that way you can identify them and sort of take them out of the mix. So we're, we're doing it routinely in diarrhea cases. Well, that is, that is interesting. And yeah, it's nice to hear that he just moved, he was able to move through it over time. Um, what about, what about quote CFO or small intestinal fungal overgrowth? What is your thinking on that? Yeah, so the challenge with CFO, so I don't, I do believe CFO accounts for a certain percentage of these patients. Um, I can't, if somebody responds, let's say to rifaximin, then it's very unlikely they have CFO because taking an antibiotic, at least by sort of convention, means yeah. that there's more opportunity for yeast and they should actually be worse because of the antibiotic. I don't see a lot of patients getting worse with rifaximin, but what if they do get better with rifaximin, that usually is a rule out for CFO for me. Mm-hmm. But there are patients who don't respond. Um, the problem with CFO is how do you test for it? Now, Dr. Satish Rao is a, is a, not an advocate, but he's a scientist studying CFO. Um, and he sees it in a small percentage of patients, but it's through culture. So he basically gets the juice from the small bowel and then proceeds to culture it to demonstrate that it's there. And then when it is there and he treats it, the patients do better. What would be the, I mean, what would be the history of somebody vulnerable to CFO? I mean, you know, use of steroids, like chronic steroid exposure. I mean, what, what, what do we think about as risk factors for it? Well, because we don't have large, like for example, Dr. Rao is doing research in this, but we, we're not systematically doing it across the country. Mm-hmm. And to look for risk factors, let's say in this case, PPI maybe, or in this case, steroids for asthma, maybe you're swallowing right. steroids, or, yeah. or just that you took a recent antibiotic or something for a dental procedure. I, I don't, those are the kinds of things we would look for if we had a large population to kind of do a multivariate analysis, but we don't have enough enough data yet to say those are true. So what I just said, we don't, we don't have proof, Yeah, but, but it's something to think about. What, okay. Well then let me ask you this, you know, knowing that I know you're, you, you won't be able to speak specifically to it, but you know, any, any kind of distinguishing clinical, clinical features, I mean, I guess they haven't responded to rifaximin, but you know, what is, how do, how would a CFO, anything you can say about how they might present? 
you know, what I, what I see from the literature and what I experience in my patients is that they may have more upper gut symptoms is what I, what I sort of see. Uh, they still have the bloating and the distension, but a little more sensitivity to foods and a little bit more um, higher in the abdomen type symptoms. That's my experience. Um, but generally, uh, I have a few patients with CFO and they respond to gluconazole or an antifungal medication. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Now, so it, I do a lot of organic acids in my patients. I actually was in a clinical lab that looked at organics, organic acids and amino acids and so forth at the beginning of my career. And D-lactate was kind of an interesting marker. I mean, you could see it extremely high, um, you know, if somebody after a course of antibiotics or, you know, with some, I mean, back then we weren't doing breath tests, but um, we would diagnose or think about dysbiosis and you know, a more general sense. Um, so, and not everybody had short bowel, so it wasn't sort of the classic um, cause of delactic acidosis. But what, what, what's your thinking about the utility of it, if if anything? And um, well, I, yeah. I guess the challenge with delactic acidosis, <clears throat> and, and this is the number one challenge, is handling of the blood sample. So it requires a special tube, a special thing on ice. I mean, it's it's a process to do it right. So it's easy to get a false negative delactic yeah. uh, uh, acidosis in a hospital or in a clinical setting. So if you're in a private practice somewhere and you're measuring delactate, it's it's tough. Urine organic acids, maybe it's easier, but it, it tends to be unstable, delactate. So, um, but I, you know, I do like the idea sort of taking, let me just say this, some of these patients do have elevated delactate Again, Satish Rao has done some of the papers on this. I can't take credit. He's, he's really been championing this. And in some of his patients, he finds it, and they have a lot of brain fog if yes. they have acidosis. Um, and so he's seen them get better with therapy for whatever overgrowth that they had uh, that was causing that production of delactate. But organic acids is interesting because it may be a way of sort of, it's, it's pie in the sky still, so I don't mm-hmm. want, to get everybody too excited, but maybe five to 10 years from now, we do a different kind of breath test. Maybe we do a breath test with hydrogen, methane, hydrogen sulfide, and we add some organic acids in there, which can give you sort of a signature of what's going on in the small bowel. Uh, I think those are things that are coming, but mm-hmm. it's really hard to dissect that out yet. And we don't have a good technology that's inexpensive and easy. <laughs> that's that, that is pretty provocative <laughs> that's real that would be very exciting and yeah really be able to do a little bit of a drill down you know to kind of stratify you know who's who's making what and you know, certainly indican is something in my world as a naturopathic physician that was you know our forefathers in this in this um profession measured it in office and it, there's some nice research coming out around it um, I mean, Indicans is still a, a published and validated as a, as a technique for overgrowth. So, yeah, yeah, and it's it's I, there was some sort of a little in in office test that docs were doing years ago. I'm I'm yeah, I, that's all I know. I don't know anything about it, but I think just a little color color metric change. Um, all right, so let's talk about uh, diet. You know, and and just what kind of what are you? What is your thinking with regard to 
you know, doing, pulling people off of FODMAPs or keeping them on and, you know, it, it and long-term eliminations, just, just in general, what is your thinking around using some of the dietary interventions for these well, various, yeah. The ex extreme thing that I say is if you eat nothing, your bacteria will go away uh, because they're no longer getting the five-star meal or any meal. And so they will die because of lack of nutrition, meaning less food, less bacteria. That's just how it works. So taking advantage of sort of that extreme way of looking at things, if you can restrict calories to the bacteria by providing calories that are very easy for humans to just sort of grab and put into their bloodstream, uh, leaving very little for bacteria to harness or use, you will reduce bacteria. And so this is sort of the mechanism of the low FODMAP and the diet we use, which we call the low fermentation diet. Um, the problem with doing that is you can take one extreme, which is the low FODMAP diet, where you re re overly restrict. And there's no denying that the low FODMAP diet will make you less bloated. The question is, what's the end game? Yes. So how... It, this is not a lifelong diet. You can only be on it for two or three months because there are nutritional deficiencies that occur. And those are now well-characterized studies that, that show that. So you have to get back on some balance of nutrition. So we came up with a low fermentation diet, which doesn't have those challenges, is more liberal with, with food, not as restrictive, and as a result, maybe not as effective or maybe not as remarkably effective, uh, but we don't use diet to treat the condition. We use rifaximin, prokinetics, and diet is a, a means of extending the remission. So some people will just give people low FODMAP diet from the get-go. We do the opposite. We treat the overgrowth first, get them to a good place, and use the diet as a way of keeping them in remission longer. Um, and I think that's a more effective way to use diet. Well then, so how do you transition them off of diet? Well, I mean, so anybody who has, for example, the antivinculin antibodies on IBS smart, they need to be on this diet until those antibodies disappear because it's likely as soon as they stop these measures, they're going to be, you know, relapsing. Uh, that's our experience. So we have to find a diet that they can do in a more long term that isn't so um, socially isolating because yeah. the FODMAP diet with its extremes make it almost impossible to eat at restaurants or to, to go out with friends and do live your life. Whereas the low fermentation diet, our whole, and I'm not comparing saying we're better or they're better, but the whole mantra of the low fermentation diet is you can eat at any restaurant and you can find something with the low fermentation diet. You don't have to, you know, spend an hour with the waiter in front of your friends trying to figure out what has what. Sure. Uh, and, and that's the part we want to make people live as normally as possible, uh, and that that's sort of our goal. And have you published on that? Is it is 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 it accessible for folks to use to find? People ask me that a lot, and. And I, I don't know why we haven't. Uh, actually, I do know why we haven't, because we've been focusing more on pharmacological therapies and keeping extremely busy on that side. And, and diet studies were just not on our radar. But, but I think 
considering the circumstances, uh, we talked about it in our research meeting lately that we really need to publish on our diet so that so that it's more transparent and, and also more objectively proven. Good. Yeah, that would be great. Any, any basic, I mean, can you, can you rough out, give me a rough outline of, of, of what might, what it might look like? Uh, so basically, um, you know, so the way we do it is we want people to eat things that are more readily digestible. So in the vegetable category, you're allowed to eat the roots and the fruits, but not the plants. So, you can eat the eggplants, the zucchinis, the squash, etc. The root vegetables, which are beets, car carrots, so forth, uh, potatoes, but not the plants. So we, we don't want you eating like Brussels sprouts or broccoli or any of those things, which would be more bloating. And of course, no legumes, no lentils, no beans. And those are pretty much out forever for these patients because they're just so gas producing. Um, and, then, and then in terms of sugars or carbohydrates, so it's really... Uh, a modified carbohydrate diet, not a low carbohydrate diet. Uh, the, the, so no non-digestible, no stevia, no Splenda. You can do equal because it's a protein, it's not a sugar. But anything that's a sugar that's not absorbed, sorbitol, et cetera, would be off the list. You could, you could not use it. So we sort of have what we call red lights, yellow lights, and green lights. So if you wanted to cheat and have a salad, even bacteria don't like spinach or arugula. So if you want to have a spinach and arugula salad, <laughs> go for it. Uh, but other salads, maybe not. Coleslaw, definitely not because it's gas. So, I mean, these are sort of just some of the highlights of the diet. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And then you, and you treat first. Um, what about, are you using elemental diet in your practice at all? Any, any times you might think about that? Well, the whole elemental diet and SIBO was a paper we started from a paper we published about, oh my gosh, 14 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, and, and it works extremely well. So we do use the elemental diet um, in patients where nothing is working and they're absolutely miserable. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the challenge with the elemental diet has, is not, to be honest, if I were to choose one therapy for every single patient, the elemental diet works better than antibiotics. Yeah. But psychologically, it's hard. It uh, is. You know, so I tell my, my, I talk to my patients and I tell them, I said, this is how the diet's going to go. The first three days, you're going to hate me. And then you're going to get used to the diet. And the last three days, you're going to hate me more because you can't wait to finish. And, um, and it's true. <laughs> they, they're just scratching till the end of the diet as they get near the end because they can't wait till it's done. It's just hard. Well, let me ask you this. Like, why are you prescribing it still? I mean, what, so, so they will get some symptomatic relief, but they also hate you in the process. I mean, is, does it, is it, is, is it important in the treatment journey? It's important because it makes the patient better. So the treatment journey is never about me. It's always about the patient. And if they're willing to do it and they want to do it and they have the motivation to do it. So we've probably done over the 15 years, 3000 patients on the elemental diets. It's a lot mm -hmm. of patients. Yeah. Uh, and it works 80% of the time. It's very effective. And I still have patients who twice a year, that's what they do. And they just reset their okay. and they, they do fantastic. They don't like it, but they know that's the one thing that gets them to their best place and, and they continue to do it. So, okay. Okay. It's, but it, okay. So I, I, that makes sense. I, I guess what I was wondering is that it's not going to be lasting like the, you know, the, the E. coli in that, you know, deep 
mucus layer are still going to be there after an elemental. So you, you need to do concurrent um, antibiotic therapy as well. Well, I never do concurrent with the elemental. It's purely elemental. So when the, the, the bugs that are in the mucus, first of all, mucus will be less produced during elemental diet uh, because of conservation. The gut conserves itself and starts to produce less mucus, even less villi. The villi get shorter because they're saying, okay, look, your arm's in a cast for two weeks. The muscles under the arm get a little atrophied because you don't yeah. need energy making it. So truly the E. coli's of the world and those bugs go down dramatically. Uh, but the, the challenge with, with elemental diet for those of your viewers who may be considering it is you have to have a post elemental diet plan. You can't just give an elemental diet and say it's going to be magic and have no plan coming out of it. So coming off the elemental diet, you have to have a diet plan. You, I almost always use a prokinetic in those patients because you don't go through two weeks of hell on an elemental diet and then have no plan. Uh, because if it comes back in two weeks, that's when patients really are frustrated because they went through that effort and it just re-emerged re re so quickly. It makes them, though, just what you're describing, you know, it, it dropping the mucus layer down, it, they, they're going to be more responsive then to pharmacotherapy, right? Possibly, but I don't use antibiotics concurrently with it. Right. No, I get that. But after in your, in your follow-up plan... Yeah, I don't. I, I haven't done that. There are people who do that, um, and they they think it does work better. But um, I, I I haven't done that. I haven't traditionally given antibiotics right after the vibinate. Okay, okay. What about addressing the mucus layer with with other interventions? I mean, have you thought about that? I mean, just trying to liberate some of the bugs to have better treatment outcome. Like, uh, we're thinking about all sorts of things. Uh, like one of the things that we're thinking about is, can we get rid of the vinculin antibody and just make the gut wake up and then everything's gone? Um, that would be the cure. Um, and, and that's one of the things we're really focusing on uh, among, among other things. There's, there's many different angles to this, but right. you're on the right track. Let's put, put it that way. And so what, how are you thinking about disappearing the vinculin antibodies? So there's a number of ways we, we can do it, but we're, because we haven't published it yet, we're, we can't really disclose all of it yet. Okay. okay. Nobody publish our can you pantomime it? <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> right now, but you can't see me. <laughs> right. Talk to me about lovastatin. You know, and it working uh, as effectively as it does for methane. Like, what's what's the mechanism? Well, so lovastatin, if you know a lot about lovastatin, was discovered in Japan, and it was discovered it's red rice yeast. So yeah, right. Things are, uh, you know, in a bog in the swamp, like 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 uh, rices. Uh, it gets fungusy and some of the fungus in swamps and bogs are aspergillus and aspergillus lives in a swamp and in a swamp methanogens live in a swamp that's why lots of methane comes off swamps right the lovast the lovastatin is comes out in these little granules out of the uh, aspergillus fungus because the aspergillus fungus doesn't like methane because it sort of intoxicates it so lovastatin 
as I understand it, is not produced for human cholesterol. Obviously, we know that it was an accidental discovery. Uh, but lovastatin is secreted into the swamp to uh, reduce methane, um, and it blocks that enzyme perfectly. That's so we're That's taking. Yep. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, we're, we're we're taking advantage of that mechanism. It you know goes in, blocks that that enzyme in the back in the in the archaea in the methanogens that make it produce methane. So they stop. Well, how did you put that together? <laughs> well, that's a that's a fun story. Um, at, you know, just piecing it together, there was some. Let me let me start over and say the veterinary literature has a lot of information about methane. So cows, for example, were given steroids and statins because the steroids help the cows and antibiotics. So stero anabolic steroids increase meat on the, on the animal. Uh, antibiotics also increase the weight of the animal. And these are called stat antibiotics, low level antibiotics. And then statins keep the meat lean and so these were things that were being done to cows to make the meat better, quote unquote. And so environmentalists and people, activists for animals and for food quality are upset about steroids in the meat, antibiotics to cows and so forth. But one of the arguments that the cattle industry said is, yeah, but statins reduce methane and so we're helping the environment in cows. So cows who are taking lovastatin had less methane production. And so it's hmm. things like that that queued us up to all of this. And, and, and that's sort of how the story started. That's fascinating. It reminds me of the Atrantil yeah. story. Um, yeah, just kind of similar looking at, at, at methane production and some botanical agents. I can't remember specifically which ones, but yeah. Um, are you using probiotics? Are you prescribing probiotics? I mean, I know it's, it's, it's mixed, but it, it can be helpful. Yeah, so the challenge with, so I don't disbelieve in probiotics. I just haven't seen the study that tips me over into using probiotics routinely. Um, all the meta-analyses, so there are meta-analyses, which you're familiar with this technique, where you smoosh studies together. Yeah. Uh, and the meta-analyses show that probiotics categorically help IBS, for example, it, it, there, there are some also meta-analyses in SIBO. There is some benefit. But if you break it down into lactobacillus, fifido, or cocktails, or saccharomyces, none of them categorically help, meaning the meta-analysis of the categories don't help. And most of them are small studies. This is the problem with probiotics is that the studies are tiny for the most part. And so it's hard to know for sure which probiotic to use, what's going to work, and, and if they work at all. So um, I'm still mixed on probiotics. Right. It, well, you know, I think, it, I think it's going to require at least to some extent understanding all of the various subcategories and who's producing what in a given condition to actually have a successful probiotic intervention. I mean, wouldn't you think? Exactly. And, you know, to be honest with you, if a company stepped up and did a large randomized controlled trial, it would be to their great benefit. I mean, look at the peppermint story. Peppermint, you know, it. I think peppermint works a little bit, but it really doesn't work as well as it's touted. And, and I'm not 
trying to knock peppermint. I'm saying, look, I use it. So I, I do use it in some of the patients where nothing else is working. I don't use it first line, but they did one small double blind study and showed that it worked in a double blind fashion. And, and it, it's helped that peppermint product, you know, be very successful. So doing a proper study is, is a good, uh, is a good thing. Now, we analyze peppermint, and I don't know, I don't want to get off the rails or in a tangent here, but the larger the study of peppermint, the worse the p-value got, meaning mm -hmm. the larger the study they did, the less statistical significance, and that's a bad sign for a product, right. because the larger study you do with rifaximin, the p-value gets better and better and better. It means that the drug is working, and if you study it in the larger populations, it's even working better, and the larger populations even working better. That's... That's why you do bigger and bigger trials for the FDA because the FDA looks for that pattern. So um, peppermint's the opposite. The larger trial they do, the worse the numbers get. So it, it makes you wonder if you did a thousand patient study like an FDA study, whether peppermint would work. So it, it's stuff like this. We just have to wrestle with what data we have. Right, right. And again, there may be a certain subtype of SIBO for whom peppermint is more effective. Exactly. And if you do a larger study, you can figure that out and, and yeah. be targeted. And, and it's just the money isn't put on the table to do that. Right. Basis. Yeah, not for peppermint. Are there any other botanicals that you're using? So I, I do use uh, Al Alamed or Allison uh -huh. uh, in some cases because of its effect on methane. Uh, I do use a Trantal in some of the refractory patients and I get some good results in some patients. I can't say it's universal, but you know, nothing's universal, right? Uh, so I do use some of those and sometimes berberine as well. Um, it, so we're just, we're at the end. I could keep pinging you with questions all day, but just one final question on FMT. Um, it was, seemed like it was a, it was, it, it was a godsend or it could, had the potential early on. And now, you know, perhaps that's a little more equivocal. Well, uh, it reminds me, and it, I was saying this all along, it reminds, FMT reminds me of the days of blood transfusion in the 70s and 80s. People were getting what was called non-A, non-B hepatitis, mm. and they linked it to blood transfusion, and they finally found out that that was hepatitis C. So you don't know what you don't know until you know it. Um, you're taking stool from some other human, and you're putting it in another human, and there are a lot of things we don't understand about the microbiome. On, on the positive side, though, if you think about probiotics, probiotics is just one bug. It's hard to imagine putting one bug into an environment of a thousand bugs and saying that that's going to just magically make things better. It's sort of like saying, okay, we're going to add a thousand lawyers to Los Angeles every day, and Los Angeles will be a better, better city. Uh, we need lawyers. We don't need a thousand every day. But, but that's the probiotic notion is that if you put something good into a city or into an environment that even though it has beneficial properties, is it going to fix the situation? And, and the answer is probably not. Now, probiotics was you're adding a city to the city so it has the right mix and maybe it will repair the city by putting the right mix into the city. Uh, and uh, very promising, I mean, uh, but my worry with SIBO is that they already have too many bacteria. Why are you adding a second city to the city that's already overpopulated? And so 
uh, my worry was people were going to get worse. And sure enough, they got worse. In, in three out of five studies, there was evidence that the placebo was working better than the FMT, which means that the FMT was making people worse. More significantly and more uh, worrisome is the deaths from, from uh, FMT. Uh, and now there are some superbugs that were transmitted from one person to another. We ourselves published a case where FMT came from a person with methane into the person mm. difficile, and now the recipient of the stool has one bowel movement a week and is absolutely bloated and miserable and can't believe how bad they feel. And so, and then what do you do at that point? They had C. diff. Do you give them antibiotics to get rid of the methane? Can right. you give them antibiotics to get rid of the methane? It's, it, it, and so it, it was a learning experience. It works for C. diff, there's no doubt, but I think we didn't know what bad things could be in the stool of somebody else. And I'll add one more flavor to that. Women's stool is different than men's stool. And so there are some who believe that you should not be cross-gendering stool as well. So it, it, just because of some of the hormones and other things that the gut bacteria produce and contribute to the overall environment of your particular gender. So because the your hormones influence the microbiome and vice versa. And so we're starting to learn a lot about that as well, even in our lab. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Dr. Pimentel, it's just been a pleasure talking to you and just having this opportunity to pick your brain today. Thank you so much for joining me and we'll, uh, we'll continue to pay attention to all of the good work you're doing. Lots coming out. So I look forward to uh, talking to you again if, if that's convenient. But thank you so much for the interview. It was, it was a pleasure. Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.